Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get some accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If that's you, grab a few friends and work your way through the Word Diet. If that's not you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that position. So how about grabbing them and working your way through the Word Diet over the next year? More information is available at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Leviticus, a grossly underrated book. My goal with this show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. The last two weeks, we've covered the why and the how of reading Leviticus, the key themes, and then an overview of sacrifices. And then in week two, we talk through the first three of five sacrifices, the burnt, the grain, and the peace and fellowship offerings. So this week, we're going to get into the last two sacrifices and then wrap up uh, a discussion of sacrifices in general, what they accomplished and what they could not accomplish. Previous episodes are available by podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and the like. So if you need to catch up, make sure you get there, along with all the other shows that we've done in the past. Lord, be with us today as we look into your word. Help us to understand the sacrificial system from the nitty-gritty to the big picture. Help us to understand who you are and what you want from us and for us in the days to come. In the name of Jesus, amen. We'll take a break before we get rolling. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. After introducing Leviticus and giving an overview of the sacrifices two weeks ago, last week we covered the burnt grain and peace fellowship offerings. So today that leaves chapters four through seven, the remainder of the discussion of the sacrifices covering the sin or purification offering and the guilt or reparation offering. First thing to note is the end of chapter three has the phrase lasting ordinance, which indicates its importance but probably more importantly, signals a transition to the new section. You see that also in chapter 4, verse 1, where again it says, the Lord said to Moses. So there's an obvious attempt here to keep the last two sacrifices separate from the first three and to treat them in a different section. So why is this? Well, first is that the burnt grain and peace fellowship offerings are voluntary for individuals where the last two are mandatory. Now, the last two are more frequent for individuals, although the burnt was mandated twice a day for the community. For individuals, you'd have the sin or purification offering or the guilt reparation offering, and then the burnt grain and peace fellowship offerings. And this is the way we see it ordered in Leviticus 9. And this models the Christian life, that sin should be atoned for, paid, that we have atonement or at-one-ment, Then you have consecration, right, dedication to the Lord that has saved you, which is then followed by fellowship. The second key distinction is is that these last two sacrifices are more focused on sin. We see this in a few different ways. The former are organized in the narrative around animal value. The latter two are focused on types of sin, particularly intentional, unintentional, and sins of omission. And the second thing we see is that there's a greater focus on how and where the blood is applied. 
as I've noted before, all of this is expressed in triads or groups of three. So we had groups of three animals, and now we have groups of three types of sins in this section. Another distinction here is that the former three sacrifices emphasized that they were a pleasing aroma to Yahweh over and over again. That phrase is only mentioned one time in the second half, and that's in chapter 4, verse 31. Jacob Milgram observes that this is a conscious attempt to distance Israel from the notion that these sacrifices for sin possess the inherent power to appease God. And that's an important distinction. Yes, they were to offer the sacrifices, but it's ultimately God's mercy and grace that allow for atonement, reconciliation, and the like. So that takes us to chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 13, the sin or purification offering. This is the longest description in chapters 1 through 6, verse 7. could be that it's new and introduced here, given the inauguration of the tabernacle and its service. Maybe the other offerings are just codifying what was already practiced uh, earlier. More likely and more clear, I think, is that there are more cases and more needs for explanation. Now, the term itself is sort of interesting. The relevant Hebrew term is usually translated sin, as in this passage, to describe faults. So that is an accurate translation. But remember that other offerings provide atonement for sin also. So calling it the sin offering obscures its purposes and implies other sacrifices are unrelated to sin. And both of those are unfortunate. As such, Wenham says we should call it the purification offering, especially given its purposes, not to purify God's people, because often bathing or confession would cover this, but to purify God's sanctuary from the pollutions of sin, so God may be present with his people. As Wenham puts it, sin defiles men, and particularly God's sanctuary. The purification offering was designed to cope with a subsidiary problem caused by human sin, pollution, and defilement. And we'll see that the blood was applied to the altar, not the person. It's not about cleansing the person as much as cleansing the altar where God would be present. Now, this is in contrast to pagan religions where gods were endangered by pollutions. Here it's that God will destroy or leave if there's too much pollution, and so it must be dealt with. Now, this need for purification would come from violations of commandments or sanctums or holy things. The former indirectly cause damage to the sanctuary, and the latter, when you deal directly with holy things, would directly pollute the sanctuary again threatening the loss of God's presence in the tabernacle. As Milgram puts it, to be sure, the merciful one would tolerate a modicum of inevitable pollution, but God will not abide in a polluted sanctuary. And so that must be dealt with, and that's what we find with this fourth offering, which we'll call the sin, or more commonly, the purification offering. Wenham makes a great observation about this and applying it to us. He says, God attaches greater significance to actions than we do. For us, they are just memories. For the biblical writers, an action has enduring after effects. In particular, sins pollute the place where they are committed. Guilt rests on the area where a murder takes place, we read in Deuteronomy 21. The sins of the Canaanites polluted the land to such an extent that it vomited them out as we'll read in Leviticus 18. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis talking about every decision that we make as individuals impacts our lives as individuals. But here the point is being extended that every action of the individual impacts society and the divine economy. 
Now, all that said, in the context of the New Testament, where no purification for the tabernacle is required, the term sin offering does make much more sense. As such, it's a type that Christ's death pays for our sin. He is our sin offering. And we find New Testament writers using it like that. Romans 8, 3, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh. Or 1 John 2, 2, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what is the purpose of the offering? Well, it's introduced in chapter 4, verse 2 of Leviticus. It's when anyone sins unintentionally. For example, Hebrews 9.7 talks about the sins the people had committed in ignorance. One prominent example of this is the cities of refuge that distinguish between intentional and unintentional murder what we might call manslaughter versus murder today. And this is described in Numbers 35, Joshua 20, and Deuteronomy 19. In Leviticus, we see some examples given in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 says, if one does not speak up when he hears a public charge, that's false. Verses 2 and 3, if you touched anything unclean, verse 2 is for animals, verse 3 for humans, then that would qualify here. And then verse 4 is about thoughtlessly taking an oath. About that, Matthew Henry says, what was before the vow in our own control afterwards is not. Once you say it, you're committed. Ecclesiastes 5 is excellent on this. Or think about the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 36 and 37. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. In other words, we should be like God, who when he speaks, it's as good as done or already done. Now, this is not the same as cheating and lying about a vow on purpose. Think about Acts 5 or the critique of the priests and the people in Malachi 1. This is an unintentional violation of a vow. I intended to do it, but it just didn't happen. So then, these are deliberate sins of omission. You have control over it and you fail to do it. You fail to act, maybe you procrastinate, you delay giving an apology, something like that. Milgram says, Leviticus demands of us to act quickly to remedy our hurts and to fulfill our obligations. To do otherwise is to contaminate not just the people we love, but also the society where we live. And here that's to be remedied by remorse, restitution, and sacrifice. Now, these unintentional sins are not modeled in the scriptures as as rough as deliberate sins of commission, but they're still problematic, and they signal that good intentions are not good enough, and we should not underestimate such sins of omission. If you think back to Genesis 3, it's filled with sins of commission and omission, most notably the latter by Adam standing there like a dope when his wife is being tempted by the devil in Genesis 3, 6. G. Campbell Morgan says this aspect of sin demands cleansing, while willful sin needs forgiveness too. And so that takes us to the other category, which is not directly dealt with here, and that's the idea of willfully violating prohibitions. Numbers 15, verses 30 and 31, anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or foreigner, blasphemes the Lord and must be cut off from the people of Israel. Because they have despised the Lord's word and broken his commands, they must surely be cut off. Their guilt remains on them. 
The problem with such intentional brazen sin is that sinners cannot approach or offer sacrifice to atone, at least without repentance and confession. If it's premeditated without remorse, it's like what we read about in Hebrews 10, verses 26 and 27. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. So purification of that sort to deal with those sins for the sanctuary must wait for the Day of Atonement or some other unspecified mercy. This ceremony, this offering here in Leviticus chapter 4, is meant for dealing with unintentional sin or sin that has been repented and confessed. The preferred remedy for the individual and for the sanctuary is to verbalize remorse and articulate the sin to confess and take responsibility, to ask forgiveness and for mercy, and to enact restitution as appropriate. And of course, all of that should sound familiar to people that are commonly spending more time in the New Testament under the New Covenant. Reducing the sin and severity by these things allows it to be reasonably covered by sacrifice. If you're not willing to do those things, what sense does it make to offer a sacrifice to God who's much more interested in justice and holiness than in mere ritual. Along these lines, it's noteworthy that confession is only mentioned here in chapter 5, verse 5, among all of these sacrifices. It is mentioned in chapter 16 in the Day of Atonement, in chapter 26 when they renew the covenant. And we also know from the scriptures that Judah is the first penitent in the Bible in Genesis 38, and that's a key component of Judaism and, of course, of Christianity. And, of course, confession is always implied, except for the fellowship or peace offerings where you're just celebrating, and implicitly it's crucial. We read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 as particularly excellent on these matters. Confession is particularly important for dealing with sin and sin nature when the sins are relatively subtle. Chapter 5, verse 5 also mentions when anyone realizes his guilt. So the first three sacrifices are not about sin per se. The fifth sacrifice is much more about restitution, which implies that the sins are more obvious and easier to measure, thus to provide restitution. Here the focus is on relatively subtle and unintentional sins, which also need to be forgiven, both for the individual and in the Old Testament context for the tabernacle itself. Milgram says here, this is a startling innovation, the idea that people need to get right with other people before they get right with God, which elevates people, but also indicates a need for clearing the tables with others in our relationship with God. Again, these are New Testament principles that find their roots in the Old Testament. All right, let's take a break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're continuing our series in Leviticus and looking at the offerings. In the first segment today, we opened up with the sin or purification offering, and we have some more work to do on that in this segment. In terms of mechanics, this offering is similar to the peace and fellowship offering. The priests would eat as before. This is described in chapter 5, verse 12, and chapter 6, verse 26. And this is in contrast to the burnt offering when no one would eat anything. In this case, nothing's going to be eaten by the offerer. That's not appropriate because it's for their sin. This is in contrast to the fellowship or peace offering, which was for celebration, and the offerer would get to eat meat in that case. Now, the exception to this, of course, would be if the priest was offering this for himself, then all of it would be burned outside the camp. 
This is talked about in chapter 6, verse 30, and chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Matthew Henry says about all this, They offered peace offerings and thankfulness for mercy, and then it was proper to feast. But they offered sin and guilt offerings and sorrow for sin, and then fasting was more proper in token of holy mourning and a resolution to abstain from sin. Now, as with the peace and fellowship offering, the fat or suet would be burned on the altar. Again, it's identified as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The only time that occurs with these last two offerings here in chapter 4, verse 31. But given that it's for sin, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 says all the rest you got to take outside and burn it. The second thing to discuss is that whose sins matters for this offering. So chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 is for the priest, verses 13 through 21 for the community, represented by the elders in verse 15, verses 22 through 26 is for the tribal leader, and then 27 through 35 is for any other individual. And in order, the offerings would be a bull, a bull, a male goat, and a female goat or lamb. Two things to note here, it's not to be a male lamb or a ram because that's the most frequent sacrifice for the burnt offering. Likewise, goats, which are the most frequent sin offering, are not used for the burnt offering. Second thing to note here is that these are male and female, so it's less valuable, costly, serious than the burnt offering. In terms of whose sins, the priest and the community are held at a higher level than civic leaders and individuals. Luke 12, 47 and 48 says, The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows, but the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows from everyone who has been given much. Much will be demanded from the one who's been entrusted with much. Much more will be asked. Or James 3, 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So the priest is a really big deal. The community is a really big deal. Matthew Henry observes here, it is bad when great men give bad examples, but worse when all men follow him. All of this is also interesting, if not fascinating, because of our usual emphasis on individual sin. Here the leader is held in higher regard that the leader, in essence, can cause people to sin. It recognizes that. Another great place to see this is in First and Second Kings, where 25 times it says that a king caused the people to sin. So there's the possibility of collective responsibility, either in allowing leaders to sin or in allowing sin to fester within a community. In a word, it's not simply about the individual with respect to their sin. It's how it affects the community and how it affects, in the Old Testament, God's sanctuary. Notice also that the level of impurity is proportionate to the magnitude of the sin. Some blood would be poured out at the base. Some would be thrown against the base as the burnt or peace offering. But the remainder is used depending on the class of the worshiper. If it's the community and the priest, that's the more serious sin, then it would be sprinkled seven times on the veil from the holy place to the most holy place and applied to the horns of the incense altar in the holy place. If we're looking at the civic leaders and the common people, then the blood would be applied to the horns of the altar for burnt offering, and that's in the courtyard, so not in the holy place, not the internal guts of the tabernacle. It's also interesting here that the rulers and the ruled are being equated. So that's an interesting innovation. And then finally, not mentioned here, but dealt with later, is what do you do with deliberate or brazen sin 
or accumulated general sin, well, those would be applied to the mercy or atonement seat in the most holy place on the single day of atonement. And we'll talk about that in chapter 16. The other interesting thing from the passage here is that if blood goes astray, they were to wash the item if possible, chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, and destroy it if not. Again, this crucial distinction between things that are common and things that are holy. In all of this, Milgram observed something that I think is fascinating, that the sacrificial system was forced to tolerate the contradictory notion that the technique of purging the sanctuary of its impurities, the purification offering, could simultaneously be a most sacred offering and a source of impurity. And this points broadly to the problems with sacrifice at all. You have an imperfect sacrifice, an imperfect priest, an imperfect altar, and of course, That's desirable in God's economy here, but it doesn't ultimately take care of everything. It's only fulfilled in the person and ministry of Christ, and the book of Hebrews is essential on this point. Another interesting feature of this offering is that it provided lower income options. Chapter 5, verses 7 through 10 provided for birds, pigeons, and doves in particular. It's interesting here that a second bird was required. As Milgram puts it, it was added so there would be a respectable offering on the altar. One bird is not enough. And then verse 8, the bird is not to have its head completely severed. And some commentators take this to be a picture of Christ who was not decapitated, but his head fell to his chest when he died. Chapter 5, verses 10 through 13 says, If you can't afford pigeons and doves, then one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour without oil or incense. So that keeps it from being conflated with the cereal offering or the grain offering. And here there's no blood. So this is a particularly big concession to the poor. And it may explain... Uh, what is otherwise confusing in Hebrews 9.22, it says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Matthew Henry observes about this, that thus the expense of the sin offering was brought lower than that of any other offering to teach us that no man's poverty shall ever be a bar in the way of his pardon. So the type of offering is not a function of the type of sin, but of the individual's means and wealth. In other words, it's available to all and required of all. In New Testament terms, of course, Hebrews 9 and 10 are essential here, perhaps most of all Hebrews 9.22, or verses like 1 Peter 1 and 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Or 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Hebrews 13, 11 through 14 is interesting here as well. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy places of sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. The last point to make here surrounds the idea that the tabernacle is a type of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.22, in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So in Old Testament terms, do we pollute that or do we purify it? Ephesians 4.30 and Isaiah 64.6 talk about grieving the Holy Spirit. That doesn't make sense here. James 1 talks about the double-minded man. How can we follow God but then follow our own whims? 
Instead, it should be verses like Galatians 5.25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. These Old Testament institutions are about God filling the tabernacle, and the type for us is that the Spirit of God should be filled in us. Let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Purity on Friend Me There. Podcasts to previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Questions and comments are always welcome on my Facebook. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're getting towards the end of our study of the sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus. First two weeks, we covered an overview, and then the first three offerings today. In the first two segments, we covered the sin or purification offering And that gets us to the guilt or reparation offering, which is covered in chapter 5, verse 14, through chapter 6, verse 7. It's commonly called the guilt offering, but Wenham argues for the reparation offering or compensation rather than guilt, given guilt's close association with sin and the so-called sin offering, the previous one that we called, and the role of reparation within this offering. So it's appropriate to call it that. Jacob Milgram disagrees. He says feeling guilt dominates the description of the reparation offering. It's also related to the Hebrew term at hand, and it is the catalyst in this offering to making things right with others and God, the prevalence of guilt in one's conscience. Whether the sin is intentional or not, after the fact, dealing with a troubled conscience, this is an opportunity to make it clean. Milgram says, no one can help them, for their pain is known only to themselves. Not even God can come to their aid, for they will not disclose their burden to heaven. It is to these silent sufferers that the priestly law brings its therapeutic balm. They need suffer no more. This is perhaps most important with intentional sin, as they're defined early in chapter 6. Milgram says the repentance of sinners through their remorse and confession reduces their intentional sin to an inadvertent sin, thereby rendering it eligible for sacrificial expiation. So let's talk about the similarities and differences between this offering and the purification and other offerings as well. This one includes some atonement, some role for confession, and presumably, although it's not mentioned explicitly, a laying or leaning of hands, as we described back in chapter 1. The blood would be thrown against the altar base, as would be the case with the burnt and peace offerings. No blood is sprinkled and applied, as with the purification offering of the tabernacle and its furnishing. And the eating is similar to the purification offering. This is described in chapter 7, verse 7. Now, what makes it different, chapter 5, verse 15, and chapter 6, verse 6, mention the word penalty, and it was to be a ram. That is the only animal that is allowed here, and it's for sin to God as a ransom. One is reminded of 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And there's a key addition here, the idea of restitution and compensation. Restitution in chapter 5, verse 16, to God, and chapter 6, verse 5, to others, of a fifth of the value. This allows for visible, costly repentance and making it right. And as with the sin offering, this is to be done before approaching God. Again, the triads continue, the groups of three. Here they're in terms of categories, types of sin. Chapter 5, verses 14 and 16, to sin unintentionally against God. Verse 15, particularly against the Lord's holy things. Now, if you did this intentionally, 
it would likely result in death by God's hand. Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu will provide an example. Number 16 with Korah and his rebellion. Joshua 7 with Achan. Uzziah's leprosy in 2 Chronicles 16. And Judah the nation is referenced in 2 Chronicles 30 verse 10. In contrast, chapter 22, verses 14 through 16, talk about eating it by mistake. That's to be avoided, but it is an example of required guilt or restitution to God. The second category is in chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Someone who sins even though he doesn't know it could be ignorance of the law, but more likely ignorance of one's actions. And here we have what seems to be a sin against conscience. There's apparently no direct damage, so no restitution is prescribed. Third category is chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, sins against a neighbor, and those are detailed in verses 4 and 5 as stealing, extortion, and other examples that define theft broadly and swearing falsely in an oath or vow. Verse 5 also has restitution on the day he presents his guilt offering. Now, less restitution is prescribed here than in Exodus, but probably there it was caught by others where here it's by one's own conscience. And so this, in terms of incentives, provides an encouragement to voluntarily surrender against a sin and the damage that it's caused. Roy Honeycutt says here, it is not adequate to seek the forgiveness of God and forget the injustices done to one's neighbor. An interpretation of forgiveness in terms of God that leaves unresolved the disruption with one's brother is false to the biblical ideal. Forgiveness is not a license to sin, but an avenue to right relationship with God and other people. Right In contrast to that, we would have a form of cheap grace. It's simply not appropriate. All that said, verse 2 opens with being unfaithful to the Lord. That's listed first. And that's always the order of sin. It's always against God and it's against others. And the two are inextricably tied together. Matthew 25, 40, in the words of Jesus, the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for or against one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for or against me. The psalmist, speaking with some hyperbole, imagines that it's only against God. Psalm 51, verse 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And we know that right relationship with God is not consistent with continual sinning. 1 John 3, 6, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. As a type, then, Christ's death atones for the damage caused by sin. For example, Isaiah 53.10 of the suffering servant, it says, It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord makes his life a guilt offering. As Wenham puts it, our spiritual debts have been written off in the sacrifice of Christ. In addition to Isaiah 53, we have verses like Matthew 6.12 that think of sin in the same manner and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors from the Lord's Prayer. Or Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Or think of the example of Zacchaeus in Luke 19, where he gives restitution to those he had wronged after coming into right relationship with Jesus. So one way to think about the sin purification offering and the guilt reparation offering is a distinction between when sins have damage that is difficult rather than easy to enumerate and the role of guilt in terms of restitution. 
It's interesting that society often downplays or ignores issues of what we might call social morality, where the biblical view is that all sin causes damage to God and to others, or in the Old Testament context, to his sanctuary. Matters of justice, society generally is better at, but far from perfect, when there's direct damage to life and property that can be measured and where restitution can be possibly arranged, at least in theory. We also have matters of omission and commission. So James 4.17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Or think of the life of Daniel in chapter 6, verse 4, that they're looking for dirt on him, but they can find nothing, that he's neither corrupt nor negligent, neither sins of commission or omission. And in all of this, maybe we can find something about sin nature rather than sin. Sin points to particular items that can be noted where sin nature is more about a general proclivity to sin and a general sinfulness that has to be dealt with as well. Of course, all of this is spelled out much more carefully and directly in the New Testament under the New Covenant. All right, let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at PureRadio.org. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're continuing our study in Leviticus, and in this segment, we're going to wrap up our study of the sacrifices in chapters 1 through 7. We've reached chapter 6, verse 7, and so what follows then is chapter 6, verse 8 through chapter 7, verse 21, and that's instructions to the priest. Now, most of that I've covered above as it pertains to the various sacrifices, with a few exceptions that I'll cover here in just a moment. I think the first question to wrestle with here a bit is why the repetition? If we have chapters 1 through 5, why do we need chapters 6 through 7? Well, from a literary framework perspective, it's interesting that 6 and 7 line up with Leviticus 21 and 22. This sets up a literary feature that I've described many times, what's called an inclusio or a chiasma, where you have something bookending the thing that's most important in the middle. So you put 6 and 7 opposed to 21 and 22, and that really is pointing forward to the most important thing in the book of Leviticus, which is chapter 16 or 19, depending on your perspective. We covered that in the introduction. Second, this is addressed to the priest. So this is supplemental to chapters 1 through 5 to help them implement. And you might not have caught it, but chapters 1 through 5 is really directed to the people, and this is directed to the priests and is seen as supplemental. Now, chapter 7, 22 through 36, the priests will be talking to the people, but this is not nearly as direct as chapters 1 through 5, where repeatedly is Moses telling the people. The people are receiving the, the instruction directly. Another way to look at this is that chapters 1 through 5 is for the people as they would see it happening day to day. Chapter 6 and 7 is for the priest, and the division here is between things that are most holy, chapter 6, verse 1 to 7, 10. In other words, everything except the peace or fellowship offering versus things that are merely holy, and that's the rest of chapter 7, the peace and fellowship offering. Another way to look at this is that the offerings are ordered in three different ways. Chapters 1 through 3, differentiated by voluntary to express dedication or thanks. The fourth and fifth sacrifices speak to the necessity of dealing with sin. Wenham calls this distinction theological. In chapters 6 and 7, the offerings are distinguished by their relative frequency and differences in eating the meat in terms of frequency, the burnt was most common because it was offered not just by individuals, but every morning and day for the community, as described in Numbers 18 and 19. 
In terms of the meat eating, the burnt is first, since no one would eat that at all. Then after that, the priests could eat, and the lay people could only eat the last sacrifice mentioned. That's peace and fellowship. The last ordering is buried in the details, but then it's illustrated in Leviticus 9, which is coming up, a typical chronological order. So that would be the sin or guilt offering, then the burnt offering, then the grain with a drink offering, along with the fellowship peace offering. And borrowing Wenham's term, this is also theological, right? You deal with sin first, then you devote yourself to God, and then you have fellowship with God. So as to the particular verses in this section, there's six that I need to deal with in chapter six. That's verses eight through 13. I'm actually going to read that. The Lord said to Moses, give Aaron and his sons this command. These are the regulations for the burnt offering. The burnt offering is to remain on the altar hearth throughout the night till morning, and the fire must be kept burning on the altar. The priest shall then put on his linen clothes with linen undergarments next to his body and shall remove the ashes of the burnt offering that the fire has consumed on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he is to take off these clothes and put on others and carry the ashes outside the camp to a place that is ceremonially clean. The fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings on it. The fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. So two prominent features in this passage. The first is that the fire is never to go out. That's mentioned in verses 9, 12, and 13. The altar of burnt offering must be continually lit. This goes back to chapter 1, verse 7 for another cross-reference. Now, practically, this would be difficult to do, especially through the night, but obviously it's something that is important to God in terms of the symbolism of what's happening here. One key consideration is that initially this fire will be lit by God, by grace, for the tabernacle in chapter 9, verse 24, and then the same thing is repeated with the temple in 2 Chronicles 7, 1. If God starts the fire, we need to keep it going. A couple things come out of this. One, it indicates that the offerings are burnt and consumed by divine and heavenly fire. God started the fire, man is continuing it. So the required maintenance of man speaks to justification and sanctification, God's provision and their participation. But that fire is never to go out. It also symbolizes a number of really cool things. The constant need and appeal for atonement. Hebrews 7.25, therefore Christ is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Second, it symbolizes continual consecration and God's complete mercy and grace. G. Campbell Morgan says the unworthy things must be handed over for destruction. The things of worth and service and fellowship must be yielded up to the fire for purification. Neither day nor hour nor minute passes, which has no need of this cleansing fire. We need continual consecration. Third, it's a picture of uninterrupted worship. We often think of worship as an event. But worship is also a lifestyle. Prayer is an event. Prayer is a lifestyle. It's something that's to be done continuously in addition to imagining it and practicing it as an event. And finally, it's a type of things in the New Testament. It's to be an eternal fire, but it could go out if they didn't maintain it. Reminds me of 1 Thessalonians 5.16 about quenching the spirit. All of this prefigures the third fire at Pentecost and then broadly a picture of the Holy Spirit in us. The other interesting feature of this passage is the ash that accumulates from the sacrifice and the clothing change. 
Notice that it includes the linen undergarments, and this was expressly to avoid nakedness and emulating pagan religion. This was described in Exodus 28, verses 42 and 43. As for the change of clothes, this is yet another reminder that the holy and the common are not to be confused. Leviticus 10.10, so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. As Milgram observes, holiness is lethal to all but the priest. Only the consecrated priests who themselves have become holy have the right to approach and handle the holy things. But then once it's off the altar, they are to switch clothes and take it outside the city, indicating the change in its status. The other two verses I want to read are at the end of the passage, chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, which provide a nice conclusion to the matter. These then are the regulations for the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, and the fellowship offering, which the Lord gave Moses at Mount Sinai in the desert of Sinai on the day he commanded the Israelites to bring their offerings to the Lord. So now some closing remarks. First, let's look at all the sacrifices together. And Gordon Winham is very helpful here. A couple quotes I want to read from him. He says, If the burnt offering brings reconciliation between God and man, the purification or sin offering brings purification, while the reparation offering brings satisfaction through paying for the sin. The sacrificial system therefore presents different models or analogies to describe the effects of sin and the way of remedying them. The burnt offering uses a personal picture. The offerer deserves to die, but God accepts the animal as a ransom. The sin purification offering uses a medical model. Sin makes the world so dirty that God can no longer dwell there. The blood of the animal disinfects the sanctuary. The reparation offering presents a commercial picture. Sin is a debt which man incurs against God, paid through the offered animal. And this is part of the wonder and the beauty of the sacrificial system. It's not a random set. It has pictures that speak to what God will later do through Jesus. Wenham continues this by speaking of Christ. So we regard Christ's death not only as the perfect burnt offering, peace offering, and purification offering, but also as the perfect reparation offering, the sacrifice which metaphorically compensates God for our sin. We must not suppose that any of these sacrificial analogies or models is an exhaustive description. They are human terms designed to give mere man some insight into the mysteries of our redemption. And thank God for the sacrificial system and what it provides us in terms of those pictures. And this leads to the next set of comments. Why do we have the institution of sacrifice here? How does it speak to Israel? How does it speak to us? Well, it models justification. We have Christ's perfect substitutionary atonement. He is the perfect high priest offering the perfect sacrifice, and it's merely modeled by imperfect people, imperfect mediators, and ultimately insufficient sacrifices. But it does point forward ably to the ministry of Jesus. It also models sanctification. It teaches that we are to deal with sin and sinfulness. It speaks to our motivation for holiness and living out what Romans 12.1 talks about as living sacrifices. J. Oswald Sanders describes the sacrifice as the ecstasy of giving the best we have to one we love. It also distinguishes between and values both corporate and individual relationships with God. As the Holy Spirit with us, this capital C church, the lowercase c church, and the body of Christ, both the corporate and the individual matter. What the individual does has an impact on community and society. 
It also indicates strong attention to detail and excellence in worship rather than treating it casually. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. For worshipers, is it appropriate to have a cup of coffee in one hand and to be chattering with friends? Is it appropriate to wear t-shirts with slogans and flip-flops? Is it appropriate to see worship as a concert and a TED Talk? No, it's worship. It's worship of the good and great God. What about those who lead worship? Is it to be casual and low quality? All of this is equivalent to Malachi 1, the offering of blemished animals. Wenham puts it this way, audiences expect performers to aim at perfection in the concert hall. Worship is also a performance of sorts, a performance in honor of the Almighty God. As no orchestra can give of its best without a competent conductor and meticulous rehearsal, so no congregation is likely to worship our holy God in a worthy manner without careful direction by a well-instructed minister. And so there you have the well-instructed minister who's passionate about worship, and you have the congregation who's participating in the worship of the good and great God. Also pointing to Christ, we have the first three offerings, which put a greater focus on his person and life, the dedication and passion, his joy, his abundant life. And then the last two, broken up by the introduction of Leviticus chapter 4, verse 1, point to the work of Christ against sin and the impact of sin on us, on God, and on others. And finally, we have the theme of God's gracious provision and their sobering participation. Imagine the confession, repentance, penitence, reparation as appropriate, personal involvement with grisly sacrifice, and yet it's still ultimately all by God's mercy and grace. They participate, but God ultimately provides. Now, what about the limits of sacrifice? I think, first of all, for modern readers, it is difficult for us to imagine their practice. It's difficult for us to understand their context, given our unfamiliarity with their culture, their history, their other forms of worship. But looking to the New Testament and the New Covenant, we do get a good starting answer to the key question in Exodus 34, and 6, and 7, on what basis will we be forgiven? God is forgiving But what does that look like? Is it anything goes or is there something prescribed? And that has been laid out here early in the book of Leviticus. So given that, what are the limitations? Well, first, it's limited to inadvertent sins, except for the Day of Atonement. It's limited in scope and duration, except for the Day of Atonement. It's one sin per sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These sacrifices are focused on what we might call big sins, whereas we know from the New Testament that every word, every thought, every action, every inaction, sins of omission, every motive is judged, and it all has to be done by faith, Romans 14, 23, or it's sin. This is a focus on the big ones only when the standard is actually so much higher than that. The sacrifices deal with sin, but they speak to, but ultimately do nothing about sin nature. Again, the Old Covenant has to yield to the New Covenant. The law has to yield to the Spirit to render the law obsolete. 
In practice, this is limited to covenant preservation and renewing relationship with an already redeemed people. There's not much here about starting new relationships between God and people. It's inherently contradictory, the imperfect sacrificial model trying to emulate something that's perfect, which can't be done until Christ. And finally, it's really easy to reduce this to mere ritual, which will be worthless without faith and repentance, outward action, and inner attitude. And this is made explicit in the covenant ratification in Leviticus 26, verse 27, if in spite of this you still do not listen to me but continue to be hostile toward me, verse 31, I will turn your cities into ruin, lay waste your sanctuaries, I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offering. The prophets will continue to bang on this in classic passages like Isaiah 1, Amos 5, and Micah 6, but ultimately it's the ministry of Christ and the Holy Spirit that resolves this for us in the new covenant. And thanks be to God for that. Good to be with you today. Hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.